right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. I'm Jim Bernica, your host, and with me today is my very special guest, Paul Erickson. Uh, throughout his nearly 40-year career, Paul's been consistently recognized as one of the Commonwealth of Virginia's most acclaimed architects. The designs for fire and rescue stations have been recognized for design ex- excellence with 23 design awards from national, state, and local organizations. Uh, Paul certified by the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, which allows him to practice nationwide. Uh, as an industry thought leader, Mr. Erickson is dedicated to improving the quality of life and longevity of firefighters. Uh, I had the pleasure to attend one of your classes back in Phoenix now uh, about, what, two and a half years ago at the um, the first cancer symposium. And uh, I learned an awful lot from that, and I'm excited that you're actually going, going to be coming here to our Brothers Helping Brothers Conference next fall. But with that being said, first of all, thank, thank you so much for taking the time to be with uh, all of our listeners and myself today, Paul. Well, thanks, Jim. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Looking forward to talking about these important subjects with you. It, it absolutely is important. I mean, every firefighter, they got to have a station. So. Yeah. You know, I always talk about my concerns is, you know, the fire, uh, you know, getting exposed to things on the fire scene and how we do tactics and everything like that. But there's an awful lot of stuff that we're exposed to also when we get back to the firehouse. And there's a lot of things that we can do to ultimately reduce our risk. So with that being said, I kind of want to just dive right into it and talk about that, that hot zone design that to me is so revolutionary. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Jim. Um, hot zone is a design concept that we've generated and been working on refining and developing for about five, six years now. Um, it originally was sparked by a conversation that I had with Cindy L. Uh, about 2012-2013. Cindy's the president of the Firefighter Cancer Foundation, and she was giving a talk about the elevated risks of cancer, the high exposures to toxic chemicals and carcinogens, and was starting to formulate the link between what's encountered at the fire scene and these high incidents of cancer. During her talk, she just asked a question, why don't we have some kind of category for our stations that um, categorize the spaces by the risk to carcinogens? And As she said that, a light went off, um, and I couldn't wait to talk with her afterwards. To make a long story short, it just seemed like an idea that clicked, and we have subsequently been uh, focusing on categorizing spaces based on their exposure to uh, contaminants and carcinogens. So, for instance, in the course of a call, emergency responder gets exposed to toxic chemicals, carcinogens, uh, other kinds of contaminants. It, get, it gets on the personal protective equipment, gets on the tools, gets on the various types of equipment, gloves, masks. That's then, unless it's cleaned at the scene, that's brought back to the station in the apparatus and parked in the apparatus bay. And we previously haven't understood that exposure is actually being harvested at the scene and it's being conveyed back to the station and then without realizing it, distributed throughout the remainder of the station inadvertently, transferring it into living zones, back into sleeping zones, even being taken home 
um, on your clothes where your family can potentially be exposed. So the hot zone design simply sets three types of spaces using hazmat thinking, strategy, training, using the hazmat mindset to create a red zone or a hot zone where equipment, apparatus, personnel that are immediately returning from a scene are potentially uh, encountered, encountering high levels of contamination. And then we separate all of the living, working spaces in a fire station from those red zone areas. We categorize them as green, safe, or cool zones, and then pay a great deal of attention to the transition spaces between those two zones. The, uh, the yellow zone becomes really an area where we're focused on cleaning and decontamination. Nice. Very, very good <clears throat> setup. Um, now, this is, uh, I've seen this a lot now in, in new fire station design. Uh, I've been able to go to new firehouses throughout the U.S. and actually Canada that incorporate some type of this, this setup. But we can also, correct me if I'm wrong, there's also a lot of things that we can do in our current stations as far as kind of uh, retrofitting it or, or redoing different areas to help ultimately reduce that exposure and, and help avoid that cancer diagnosis down the road. Yeah, obviously when you're designing a, a new station, you have carte blanche, you have the opportunity to do the very best practices because you're not restricted by existing construction or configurations. With an existing station or renovation, uh, you don't have that latitude and you don't have the opportunity to really make it optimal. But that doesn't mean that you can't do something. So what we've been advocating is people open their eyes to where the risks and the exposures occur and to think about uh, being attentive to, excuse me, <clears throat> not transferring uh, potential contaminants within the station to clean zones. So... Um, Washing your hands is extremely important. Uh, that's one of the highest risks and the, the most common ways to transfer contaminants um, to other parts of the station, to potentially food or water, which could then be ingested, uh, potentially after you've taken some clothing off uh, or protective gear off. If your hands are contaminated, you might be touching your face or your, your head or your shoulders and the contaminants can transfer into your system via absorption. So we really try to pay attention to ingestion, respiration, breathing it in, or absorption. And if you have uh, the opportunity to create sinks or hand-washing areas between the apparatus bay and the living quarters, that's a really important thing to try to achieve. We also ought to look at the kinds of things that are stored typically in an apparatus bay. It's not uncommon to see an ice machine in the apparatus bay itself where it's exposed to diesel exhaust, where it's exposed to various kinds of grit and dirt that comes from the apparatus. And of course, if it's exposed to it, it can get into the system and into the ice itself. Many people have seen the, the little trick of taking a bucket of ice um, from the apparatus bay, saving it out, setting it in the living quarters, waiting until it melts, and then perceiving the film of oils and debris that's on the surface 
that was in the ice. So getting ice machines out of apparatus bays is an important thing to do. If we're storing food supplies, vending machines that are in apparatus bays or um, potentially contaminated spaces, those kinds of contaminants can get into the vending equipment. It might get into the onto the surface of the bottle of water that you then drink, and then you're ingesting it. So taking all food, all beverages, and paying attention to what's stored in the bays should not be something that's transferred to the other parts of the station. Perfect. I, I kind of talk about a lot of times how diesel exhaust goes really anywhere and everywhere. So uh, just like you said, with the, whether it's the ice machines or the pot machines or drinking fountains, you know, when you're, when you're drinking out of the drinking fountain out of the bay, it's just, to me, is diesel exhaust flavored water. That's, that's really yeah. all it is. Yeah. And, you know, for, for many years, um, the exhaust wasn't, wasn't treated, wasn't captured, wasn't filtered, and it got into the spaces. So with existing stations in particular, unless it's been thoroughly industrially cleaned, it's likely that the surfaces, the surfaces are contaminated. And putting your hand on them allows your hand to pick up those types of contaminants. Again, if you touch your mouth, if you touch your skin, it allows those contaminants to transfer via absorption or ingestion or even just through respiration, through breathing into the system. So I know in the city of Boston, Commissioner Finn is being very aggressive. Their building stock is extremely old. I think he says the average age of the station is 75 years. Uh, and they have a number of stations that go back into the 19th century that are still active. They have never been thoroughly cleaned. So if you think of tens um, and maybe even over 100 years worth of accumulated exposure to carcinogens and contaminants, it's really a toxic environment. He's going in with industrial um, hygienists and cleaning out cleaning all the wall surfaces, replacing the ceilings, replacing all of the um, absorptive floor materials, um, and really being very thorough in trying to clean that environment. They can't necessarily replace the station, um, but he can be aggressive about trying to clean it. No, he's, and he's being so proactive. You know, uh, they made, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Paul, but they made a great video a couple of years ago. I still show it to, you know, whenever, whoever's taking my class, because it's just so personal yeah. um, of, of the struggles of Boston. And, and I always, I always ask everybody like, you know, what's the difference between the fires in Boston and your department? And granted, they probably they don't fight anywhere near the fires that the Boston fire department fights, but the fires are the same. And that's the point. And all it takes is really one fire for us to, you know, get exposed to some of this nasty stuff. And that may be the one, you know, yeah. 20, 25 years down the line. Yeah. Now, uh, another thing I always talk about is, and you touched on it, is that, you know, absorption, um, testicular cancer, according to university of Cincinnati, right down the street from me, number one cancer we get or scrotum, is 300% more absorbent. And by the way, I, I made a joke just the other day. I was talking about this. I never thought in my life, I would have never predicted the amount of times that I've had to say scrotum 
and and, <laughs> and be serious <laughs> about it. But it's an issue. Yeah. So if you're able to, you know, I always talk about you got to wash your hands before using the restroom. It's the polite thing to do. It's how you're probably raised to wash it afterwards. But for us, because of everything we touch, we've got to wash it beforehand, which <laughs> we often forget. Yeah. Well, and and I think people haven't appreciated the fact that your hands are potentially contaminated that, uh, and that, uh, you know, that part of our body is the thinnest skin. So it's the, the quickest path. And also with elevated temperatures, the absorption rate is elevated as well. So we know that it's hot work. We know that it's sweaty work. And then when we take uh, our hands that are contaminated, place it on the thinnest skin in our body, um, it's just like a highway for the contaminants to enter into our system. Exactly. Now, you kind of were touching on diesel exhaust there. I, I get this question all the time. What's the best diesel exhaust system? And and I always kind of go, well, there isn't an ideal system. You know, they all have their flaws. But when you're setting up a new station, what do you usually recommend? Yeah, Jim, it's a great question, and I wish that I had a single stroke answer for you. Uh, the reality is that uh, we're recommending a belts and suspenders approach. Um, there are really three types of systems that we think about these days. Uh, the type that is a filter system that doesn't have any kind of hoses. It allows the apparatus to exhaust into the apparatus bay and then usually through suspended filter units um, hung from the ceiling, it uh, sweeps or cleans the air. Um, we don't recommend those systems. They have, they have their merits, of course, but the, the reason that we stay away from recommending those is that we don't like the idea of allowing a toxic environment to be created in the first place. Any of the exhaust that gets into the, the space will eventually be cleaned out, but until such time, that work environment is a contaminated environment. It also allows those contaminants potentially to come in contact with other surfaces, which thereby become something that be, is residue and be a contaminated surface. And they require maintenance, every system does. Um, how often they're maintained, you know, I don't know. Uh, the two systems that we uh, tend to propose is a direct capture system, either vehicle-mounted direct capture systems something like the uh, no smoke two that Ward Diesel produces, um, and a piped direct capture system, a building mounted system. Uh, Plyme Event, Niederman, and others manufacture those systems. And as you said, there are drawbacks to all of them. You know, how many times have we seen the uh, hoses hanging in the bays not being connected, and of course not doing one thing to control the diesel exhaust if it's not engaged? There's a, a human element that has to be uh, factored in, a discipline and understanding why the system's there in the first place, how it's protecting your life and your well-being. Um, but the, the long-winded answer here is we recommend both direct capture systems on the vehicles and in the building. Nice. Perfect. Uh, I can't agree with you more about that. Um, I always talk about it because really my whole side of things is so we got to limit our exposure to as much things as possible. 
So I know that uh, having a host system is can be a pain, and compliance is certainly an issue, and maintenance is an issue as well. But at the same time, if that if we're able to use that and use that properly when we're leaving and also when we're coming back, if we're, that means if we're backing up, right. actually hooking it up at the threshold yep. uh, of the of the door there. That way, we're we're limiting the amount of exhaust that goes into the station, which therefore is limiting the amount of exposure that we end up getting on ourselves or our gear or anywhere else within that apparatus bay and even maybe the living quarters. Yeah, very very much so. It's about trying to have the environment be as safe from the outset as possible, and then to be aware of um, not conveying those contaminants to other parts of the station. Exactly. Now let me ask you about this is, and this is a, to me, an interesting topic. And, and I've kind of touched on this before uh, in one of our, the past episodes in the archives where I talked to Jacqueline Toomey from the first responder sleep recovery (laughs) center. But uh, can we, let's, let's talk a little bit about a firefighter sleep and, and the station alert systems and, and even kind of go into that, immersive design, which is, it's all yeah. kind of relevant to sleep, which is much more important than I ever really realized that. Yeah. Uh, the whole, Jim. and you could, I think you can appreciate this. You, you probably are aware of the whole Warren Zavon, you know, obviously Werewolves of London, probably his biggest hits, but the other one that one of the other songs that are great is the I'll sleep when I'm dead. And yeah. I had that attitude for the longest time. And I finally realized I probably should sleep now. So I don't die. Yeah. Exactly. You know, we're all we're all tough. We're indestructible. You know, bring us the next thing and we'll we'll take it on. And the reality is resilience is a a really important issue for the services. And sleep is essential to mental and emotional well-being and to to physical capabilities. Um, You know, a number of studies about uh, 24, 48, you know, 72 hour shifts and the kinds of degradation that occurs um, with those longer shifts towards the end of it can be linked back to sleep patterns and disruption. So as, as we've done our research and our studies, and I'm not pretending to have any of this at a scientific level of study, but by being diligent and being thoughtful and pursuing what's available uh, in the general uh, internet and marketplace, we've really come to appreciate the importance of circadian rhythms, the natural rhythm of the sun, and as that goes across the heavens uh, during the day, and as night descends, our endocrine glands are tuned to uh, clues of daylight. The color of the, the daylight um, is measured in Kelvin temperatures, and you have more blue types of colors in the morning and more amber at night. And we are biologically wired based, you know, all the way back to our caveman ancestors to respond to that natural environment. So our endocrine gland stimulates us in the morning and brings us into full performance later in the afternoon. And at night, when it's time to go to sleep, the other aspects of the endocrine system start to clue us and cue us into getting a good night's sleep. If that's disrupted by phone, by Uh, incidents by calls, then the sleep patterns are broken and um, it ends up showing in long-term health issues. And obviously we're doing this over the course of years and decades, 
it's not a one-time thing, but it builds in long-term health um, consequences. So what we do with immersive design, we think about, <coughs> pardon me, being immersed in an environment and trying to have that be as natural as possible. So we open up opportunities for daylight to enter into space and views to the outside to be provided. There are some very interesting studies that we've come across. Um, in 2009, uh, Jerry Farbstein and Melissa Farling did a study on a jail intake room that was an interior space without any windows. It was just plain blank walls. And the people that were working there um, had a very stressful work experience. And in short, what the researchers did was paint a mural on the wall of an outdoor naturalistic scene that represented a view to, say, the savanna, to a pasture, to some trees. And they came back and they did tests both before and after that and found that the people that were working in that space significantly uh, improved their performance with cognitive decision-making, that their stress was reduced, that their heart rates and their blood pressure was reduced, that their sense of fatigue was reduced. They even came on um, uh, shift at the beginning of the day with lower blood pressure than when they had started previously. So it had lasting biological impact, just painting a natural scene on the wall. There was another study that was done actually over about 10 years from 1972 to 1981 by Robert Ulrich in, in uh, a number of hospitals. And they looked at the way that patients recovered between a room that was an interior room with no views compared to a room that had a view to the outside and had natural daylight coming into it. And it was striking that the patients that were in the rooms with the view had a shorter stay, they experienced less depression, less pain, and less negative comments reported to the staff than those that had the interior room with no view. So there's an obvious psychological impact of daylight, natural views to the outside on our pre-wired, very primitive animal mind. We try to bring those um, views of nature and daylight into the building to create a more environmentally um, uplifting uh, workspace for the emergency responders. It also allows those um, sort of natural visual clues to what time of day it is. Is it night? Is it day? And to try to reinforce and strengthen the sense of the circadian rhythms so that you can get as close as possible to a natural uninterrupted pattern of sleep at night and wakefulness during the day. Nice. And, and you've been able to kind of blend the hot zone design with the immersive design? Sure. And one is sort of a sequence of space and containment of contaminants, if you will, trying to make sure that when you come through the, um, the decontamination spaces for hot zone design in the yellow zones, <clears throat> those have 
showers and locker facilities so that you can shower within an hour and get a clean uniform on and get back into service and make sure that the contaminants are contained. But then when you move into the living zones, we want to open up views to the outside with windows at the end of hallways, um, transparency between spaces, maybe an exercise room has a glass wall and it's adjacent to a corridor that has a view out to a, a courtyard, but we allow spaces to borrow both daylight and vision um, from one space to another. It, it creates a sense of camaraderie and connectedness between team members. You have a sense of community that's enhanced by that. Always have to balance privacy, but we do want to encourage uh, a sense of connect connectedness and awareness of your surroundings. You know, that you, if you're just subliminally aware of what's around you and that it's a safe environment, you have a sense of security, you have a sense of serenity, you have a sense of peace of mind, more so than if you're isolated. So we also use natural materials as representations of the natural world outside. Stone, uh, concrete, earth tone, wood. Um, we bring those natural materials to the inside of the building to help create this sense of a organic environment, something that's a lot, it's sort of on a subliminal level, talking to our caveman ancestors and making them comfortable and at ease in the workplace. Nice. Perfect. I wanted to, if you don't mind, go back to talking about that circadian rhythm. I, I've noticed now, I've been to a few stations, even even last week I was doing uh, inspections over at uh, my buddies at Wright Pat Air Force Base here in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Uh, a little shout out to them. But they, you know, they've got a couple stations are a little bit older, but at the same time, they've been able to go in and update their station alert system. And I'm just, I'm really jealous of the whole thing because they have it set up and I'm sure you set it up like this as well at, at your newer stations, but they did the whole retrofit where they have their own private bunker where whatever apparatus they are, that's going to be the only one that they hear that's alerted. Yeah. So if they're if they're on the engine and a truck goes out, they're not being woken up. Yeah. And when they do get woken up, they're not, you know, being scared to death by this light coming on. They're they you know, they actually have these soft red lights, the the tones ramp up. I mean it's it's you know, when you get do get woken up, you're not already starting at a you know, hundred and twenty beats per minute just from being yeah. woken up like that. But uh, I, I just I think to myself and, you know, almost 19 years of, of doing this where I'm at and I think about all the times. I mean, it's just got to be I don't even want to know what the, the amount of times, hundreds of thousands of times that I've been woken up for an apparatus that I wasn't on. Yeah. And how, you know, how how that's kind of screwed with, you know, really my wellness system in my body. So, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a really important point, and, and you make it extremely well. Uh, you know, the old school systems of clangs, clanging gongs and bright lights were the ones that accelerated the heartbeat. It was a jolt. It was a cardiac shock. Uh, your eyes weren't oriented to the lights. It's a traumatic biological experience. And to go from a resting, sleeping heartbeat of 60 or 65 or 70 to this pounding alarm, you get the, the, 
the dump of adrenaline into your system, the, the fight or flight is kicked into activation. Um, and it takes a while for that to come down. You're biologically jolted. Um, and that is a, a strain on a system over um, the course of years. It, it wears people out. It gives them heart attacks. And so the uh, newer systems that you're talking about, Purvis makes them, Westnet, a number of other manufacturers employ that uh, technique of tones that start with a, a lower volume that rise and with lights that are integrated with that that also rise from a low level to an intermediate level so you're not blinded um, and actually go out into the response path so that in the, the hallway or the pathway to the, to the, the bays, um, you're waking up and the light is slowly rising rather than a sudden flash of blinding light in your face. Your point about the, uh, the private bunks or the single user bunks is uh, priceless. It gives the mm -hmm. chance for a good night's sleep. Someone with a CPAP machine or somebody that's snoring isn't disrupting you. And when you get a call, you can set the alarm to those um, duties that require you as an individual to respond. And if someone else in the company doesn't need to go, they're not disrupted. They're able to keep sleeping through the night, which is really important. Yeah, that's absolutely huge. I'm, I know I'm missing out on that. I'm, you know, the ones that have that, you're fortunate and I'm jealous. But uh, I, I appreciate all your time. I want to kind of get into this these random 25 questions for you. We, we talked all business. Now let's actually get a little personal, have some fun before I get you out of here. Okay, good. So here's the deal. I got 25 random questions because this is called a 25. And uh, I'm going to let you choose your own fate. And they're all pretty fun questions. I mean, nothing yeah. too deep or too too trippy on us, but uh, just an opportunity for our listeners to learn a little bit about the actual man. The, uh, yeah. the uh, which again, I'm jealous of. I haven't won a championship here in Cincinnati since 1990. <laughs> I was yeah. 11 years old, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we, we all get lucky uh, on occasion. Yes. I'm sure more than anybody, the Expos are jealous. Yeah. That we, <laughs> we are, we're having a good time here in Washington these days. Yeah, good deal. So, all right. Go ahead. Number between 1 and 25. Well, let's, let, let's hit a prime number. How about 19? All right. Well, my man. All right. Number 19 favorite sports team <laughs> well i just me, got to to that whole minute before didn't i <laughs> you just kind of teed me up didn't you oh with a with a world championship here in washington dc i gotta say the nats now yeah, that's you know it's kind of everybody knew that nobody was yeah. surprised after i yeah. gave that little intro so let's uh, let's do it can, can we do another one then oh yeah absolutely let's go 13 all right what's your favorite holiday Oh, okay. So that's a good one. You know, um, there's, we, we close, uh, our office on president's day and it's a long time from new year's to Memorial day. Uh, and I can't think of a really good reason to observe president's day, except it's timing in the year. And we get away from the end of the, uh, 
the holidays and get back into work. I really like the breather that observing President's Day when everybody else mostly except the federal government is working. That's probably the one I enjoy. Let's see. That's a good answer for a guy that works Monday through Friday. Yeah. We don't yeah. have <laughs> There firefighters are like, yeah, a holiday's yeah, so a holiday. He, yeah, like, what what's he talking about? Yeah. We know that yeah, if we work Christmas and we do Christmas stuff Christmas Eve. I mean, it's just, yeah. yeah. We we're not, we don't appreciate the whole the extended holiday weekend. We don't yeah. get that. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, how about one more? One more. Uh, let's go with uh, lucky number seven. This is one of the most popular ones I get. Yeah, of course. All right. Uh, Spider-Man versus Batman. Who you got? Who would Spider- win? Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just like, uh, you know, I like the way he can swing from buildings and, you know, jump onto the side of stuff. That, that's, that's a that's an architect kind of answer. That's yeah, clear. it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's not oh, bound bound to the ground. He can swing through through the uh through the skyline I'll, I'll ask you uh one that's not off this this list this is uh this would be question number 26 especially made for you yeah. what is the the best architecture you've ever seen whatever what city kind of were you just like oh my gosh this this is great where you really appreciate it more than any place else yeah you know the, there my first my first uh, inclination was uh paris and then New York started saying, hey, what about us? And then Chicago said, hey, what about us? And then San Francisco said, hey, what about us? And then Istanbul uh, said, hey, what about us? So uh, those are the cities that come to mind. Nice. That, that sounds good. So you don't have an actual favorite. They're all, they're all your favorites. They're all your babies and all because they're all probably a little bit, clearly they're a little bit different. Yeah, they've they've all got a, you know a different kind of charm, and I could I could tell you what I liked about each of them, um, but uh, they they all, uh, as an architect, lift my spirit, and uh, that's what I respond to. I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask question twenty seven. Yeah, because you look I'm sure you look at stuff differently than than the average person. Um, what's your what's your and don't say the nationals. I'm not gonna that 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 question is not that's 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 not a the answer I'm looking for. All right. But what's what's your favorite ballpark? Oh, Camden Yards uh, for the Baltimore Orioles. It was sort of the first retro stadium that was ever designed. Uh, it's it's I'm sure heading towards 30 years old now, maybe 25, and it's still the best. Uh, it's a great ballpark to watch the the sport. Uh, and the way that it opens up to the city and is engaged with the city is is uh, top shelf. Nice, that's a good answer. I I did enjoy that field as well. There was in my younger periods, and some of my listeners know this. Uh, before the kids and the wife and all that stuff, I was able to go to all thirty major league ballparks at at one time. I had them all checked off the box, and now I'm uh, life happened, and I'm missing a few. So. Well, there's probably a few replacements that have come online since yep. you since you did that. Exactly, but I, I you know, I, I appreciate the character that that baseball stadiums are able to have. You know, it's not something you're going to see in a basketball arena or a football stadium. I mean, they just yeah. they don't have that opportunity that the baseball stadiums generally do. 
and the and the outdoor stadiums have it all over the enclosed stadiums uh and that maybe it's getting back to some of that immersive design conversation but being open to the sky and having the daylight come in and being able to see the surrounding community is so much better uh experience than an enclosed uh, arena of some sort yeah did you uh, did you ever get the chance to go to Detroit's ballpark, the Comerica ballpark? Uh, I haven't seen Detroit. I've I've been to Wrigley's and uh, been to Fenway, but I never have been out yeah, to Detroit. Classics, yeah. There's just so much going on there. Um, yeah. I, I think you you'd you'd like that a lot. But anyway, let's let's uh, finish up here. If if anybody had any questions, if they were looking for you to maybe design a firehouse for them, where would they actually contact you at? Well, we've got a, a website. Uh, folks, if they wanted to come and look at some of our work and, and uh, engage with us, that's at LEW Architects. Uh, and um, the uh, phone number here, if someone wanted to call, 703-956-5600. All right, perfect. Well, once again, thanks so much for um doing this conversation with me. Uh, I loved it. I'm sure our listeners will love it too. And and I'm so looking forward to you actually making your way over here. Uh, it's still a while away, but I know it's going to just kind of creep up on me, you know, yeah. next, next October um, well, for the brothers conference. Um, well, I, I am, I am too. I'm looking forward to that a, a lot. We've got uh, some work that we're doing in uh, Ohio and certainly Look forward to seeing our friends there and yourself and others in the in the field. Well, yeah, and this is like what we did today is really just kind of the Cliff Notes version of, of what you'll be doing. You know, during that conference, you're going to be talking about not only, I mean, you're going to have separate uh, programs. You're going to talk about the hot zone design and go into much more detail there. And then it's the same thing with immersive design. So you're going to have a much larger opportunity to go just a little bit deeper with with both those topics which i think are going to be great and i always enjoy the back and forth you know people are always um offering some thought provocative questions that uh test us and take us into uh unique areas so that's that's always uh something i look forward to all right well again thanks so much um all my listeners don't forget to subscribe write a nice comment if it's not gonna be a nice comment don't even write it I won't tell anybody, <laughs> but, but uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll put this out uh, here on Tuesday, and then uh, I'll have all my listeners listen to you there, and then uh, the following Tuesday after that as well. But uh, happy holidays, Paul. Again, thanks again, and, and I'll be in touch, my friend. Thank you, Jim. Right, take care. Yeah.